Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Tim, would you lead us in prayer, please? morning. Will you all turn with me to number 505 in the brown?
have a favorite hymn they'd like to sing this morning? Any specific reason? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right.
scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. That'll be page 1303 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Verses uh, 1 through 18, Ezekiel chapter 16. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your frame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your frame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you 
the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Father in heaven, as we ponder this, Lord, give us insight and wisdom to absorb this, lay it upon our hearts, and draw us to you closer. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. I'll turn with me again to 490 in the brown, 490.
Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. The reason for the fact that there's so much ambiguity with regard to love is because love is almost universally equated with love feelings. We've all heard people say, I just don't have any feelings for so-and-so. The implication is that feelings come and go, and no one can control the circumstances which make them arise or disappear. So the bottom line is that we are simply helpless victims of the whims of our heart. Destined, as it were, to fall in love and maybe fall out of love with the same person. And if the latter occurs, well then, tough as it may be, there's not much that can be done about it except to call the whole relationship off. We would not think of staying in a relationship, in a marriage, where there were no love feelings. And added to all of this is the assumption 
that love is a purely subjective emotion with little or no room for objectivity. Even how we are attracted to one another is used as a verification. Someone is attracted to another because of their looks or their smile or their figure or in the case of men because a man is tall, dark, handsome. person may be loved for his or her intelligence or sense of humor or because they have a caring and kind nature. But when all the analysis is done, we still think of all of this as purely subjective. We have an expression, well, you don't you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And as we apply this to the subjective nature of love, we would say, well, what is appealing to one person may be a total turnoff to another. We believe that this proves that love is subjective and has little to do with reason or logic or a decision of the will. Well, today we want to look at these myths, for surely they are myths from God's viewpoint and God's own example to us of what real love consists. So elective love is the account in Ezekiel, and there are two stories that illustrate the principle in Ezekiel. Our text before us, Ezekiel 16, takes us back into the mind of God at the earliest history of Jerusalem, in particular, more generally, Israel as a nation. When they were nothing but pagans. Maybe you didn't know they started out that way, but they did. Verse 3. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. Whoa. A reference not to any particular person, but a reference to the peoples who populated the lands from which Abraham and Sarah journeyed before showing up in the Jordan Valley. How precarious indeed it was the state of these two foreigners, Abraham and Sarah, and their nephew Lot, as they arrived at Canaan, precarious and insignificant as far as the people go. God himself notes this in our text by showing how unloved and unwanted Israel was, verse 4, on the day you were born, that day you came to be a, a nation, Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt, that's a healing procedure, nor were you wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field 
for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now that's a view of Israel we don't normally think about, is it? But that was, this is their beginning. The analogy is that of an unwanted aborted baby, a fledgling nation, if you would, that had been discarded and left in the field to die. Note the descriptions. The normal biological needs required to assure the life of a newborn were deliberately ignored. No cutting or sealing of the umbilical cord. Verse 6 emphasizes the blood loss. No cleansing with water. No antiseptic salt to cure for infection or to ward off. No cloth wrappings to protect from the elements. These are all sins of neglect. And every one of them designed to facilitate death. But also sins of commission. Verse 5, this baby no one pitied, no one had compassion for. Instead, it was thrown naked into an open field, and it was left to die by exposure because it was despised. So clearly, Israel had a very rocky start. It was not wanted. It was not appreciated by the surrounding nations. Certainly, the Canaanites did not relish the idea of forfeiting their land to this upstart of a people. Obviously, this newborn had many strikes against it. And humanly speaking, it was destined to be swallowed up by the more powerful neighbors. One could hardly have picked a more vivid picture of vulnerability than an aborted, unwanted, unloved infant thrown, that is exposed, and unprotected into an open field. But this was Israel. How then did she survive? Verse 6, God is speaking, and he says, Then I pass by. And as you lay there in your blood, she's out in the open field now, left to die. As you lay there in your blood, I said, Live. I said, Live. God Almighty, who has the power to save or destroy, walked by and he said, live. In the midst of Israel's dying day, God said, live. When no one had compassion on Israel and looked upon her with no pity, God said, live. When she was despised and the sentence of death due to exposure, was upon her. God said, live. He did more. Verse 9. I bathed you with water. I washed the blood from you. I put ointments on you. 
Verse 7, I made you grow, and you grew and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Verse 10 and following, I clothed you with an embroidered dress, put leather sandals on you. Verse 11, I adorn you with jewelry, bracelets, necklace, nose ring, earrings, beautiful crown on your head. Verse 13, you became very beautiful and you rose to be queen. Verse 14, the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now what is all this? Well, it is God in his sovereignty choosing to love a discarded child of the world, a nation destined to perish off the face of the earth because of its vulnerability and because of no one to come to its aid. People scarcely born was in the throes of death. And God chose to grant life, saying, Live. Live. And so breathed life into what was destined for annihilation. You say, well, then God in his omniscience must have seen some redeemable qualities in this fledgling people in order to choose to love them. That's the way we always think in terms of when good things come to people from God. But God won't allow us to think that way about Israel. We go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and God answers, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you, that is to say, he didn't love you and choose you, because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath sworn to your forefathers that he brought you out, and that is out of Egypt, you remember the Exodus, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following. So there's no thought here of any so-called redeemable quality in Israel. No idea that God foresaw faithfulness in Israel And so chose them as his people based on that foreseen fidelity. Now in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 8, verse 6 and following, it explains that God will drive the wicked nations of Canaan out before Israel. And he says, I'm reading now, understand then that it is 
not because of your righteousness. That the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. In case you don't know what that means, that's Bible language for you were a stubborn, a willful, a defiant people to the Lord's commands. You weren't obedient. No kudos for that. The love of God, brethren, for any people is an elective love. That is solely of his choosing and a choosing which resides solely within himself. God is not coerced into loving us by a power greater than himself, nor wooed into loving us because of logical or rational arguments, nor drawn to loving us because he sees in his omniscience that one is less wicked than another. God is not impressed with your credentials because you have nothing to commend yourself to God. You're bankrupt morally and spiritually, and I am bankrupt morally and spiritually. And we never outgrow this bankruptcy. It'll always appear on the credit report. We are ever dependent upon the grace of God to keep us in his love and to credit our account with deposits of the righteousness of his son on a regular basis, his son Jesus. Paul explains God's sovereign love using the human progenitor of Israel as a reference point. Romans chapter 9. He writes, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, the order that God's the order in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verse 10 and following. Now I'm sure that you have all heard this explanation of God's elective grace. It goes something like this. Well, God looked down the quarters of time And he saw who would believe in his son, Jesus, and who would not. And on the basis of what he saw, through his omniscience, he chose those who would believe in him to become a part of his family. In other words, they're saying, God chose us because he saw that we chose him. Okay. In that scenario, who's the Savior? 
Who's the Savior? It's not Christ. It's the person that did the choosing, made right moves towards God. This text in Romans 9 categorically refutes that kind of twisting of the truth. Paul is careful to place the choosing of Jacob as overseer of his older brother Esau, unheard of, by the way, in Oriental cultures, before their birth, before any opportunity to prove themselves worthy of God's love by deeds of righteousness. And the reason given for such an outrageous reversal of family protocol is this, Jacob I loved, but Esau. I hate it. People read this and they say, that's not fair. That's not fair. Esau never had a chance. And behind that suggestion, of course, is the assumption that God loved Jacob because of some intrinsic value that he had over his brother. That's not true. It cannot be true. Have we forgotten what a scoundrel Jacob was? Oh, wow. What a liar and a deceiver and a wheeler-dealer. His name means a, a heel-grabber. In other words, somebody that causes another person to trip up and fall down. He hoodwinked Esau out of his birthright. He tricked Isaac into blessing him with Esau's birthright. Satan is called the deceiver, Revelation 12, verse 9. Jacob was the devil's child before God changed his heart. He got his way by being crooked and deceptive and a liar and all of those bad things. But when God saved him, he got a new name to go with his new nature. The deceiver was given the name Israel, the prince of God. Wow. What a transition from the deceiver that's like the devil to the prince of God. But at the point of God's choosing, Jacob was just as evil as Esau, and Esau was just as innocent as Jacob. They both deserved the rejection of God. They both stood condemned as sinners. They both had inherited the wages of sin, which is death and hell. But God chose to love Jacob and that to display his mercy where he so chose. And that is precisely his prerogative as God. And Paul answers our objections, the objections that we have when considering things like 
In Romans 9, verse 14 and following, Paul says, what shall we say then? See, he knows it's going to upset his hearers. You mean to tell me Jacob was chosen over Esau, though Esau was the firstborn. But Jacob was chosen over Esau. But they were both equally equally sinners. That just isn't fair. So Paul, boy, he, I give him credit. He, he tackles this right in the forefront. No hiding it. What shall we say then, says Paul? Is God unjust? Answer, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion, that is to say, I will love whom I, uh, whom I will, and have compassion on him or her, as the case may be. Verse 16 states the clu- conclusion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Simply put, God chooses to love whom he wants to love, and the mercy he bestows upon them is the proof of his love. By the way, don't we choose whom we want to love? Well, I hope you do. Hope you didn't marry somebody that you didn't love. The Esau's of the world are not treated unjustly by God. No, they get justice. They get exactly what their sinful lifestyle deserves. And the Jacobs of the world get sick. They receive what their sinful life does not deserve. Grace reaches down from glory, from the love of God, and it places them in his family for no other reason than that God has willed it so. Boy, there is a hard pill to swallow. Verse 25 from the book of Hosea says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Wow. God's will makes it happen. So, Israel is a nation of people. Ezekiel 16 talks about the aborted child that no one wanted. Whether that or Jacob as the individual who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel makes no difference. Both were the products of God's elective love. Had he not chosen to say, to that aborted baby dying in the field, live! The nation would have died at birth. Had he not chosen to say, Jacob, I love you. 
there would have been no Israelites. Now, why is this so? Because people get all bent out of shape when they hear this teaching from the Scriptures. Why is this so? Why does God choose whom he will love upon his own sovereignty without taking into consideration the merit or the actions of the recipient? That question is asked all the time. And to answer this, we have to go to the second text in Ezekiel, which we read for our meditation this morning, Ezekiel 37. And in this text, Ezekiel was transported by the Spirit of God to the middle of a valley whose floor was strewn with thousands and thousands of bones. And verse 2 says, very dry bones, to indicate that they had been there a long time bleaching in the desert sun. The vultures had long since picked away every scrap of flesh on those bones. The ants had drained every vital drop of blood from the marrow, and the sun had baked them hard and white like so much pillars of marble from a stonecutter's tool. Sanson would have found any one of those bones a formidable weapon to use against his enemies. They were rock hard and strong. And as Ezekiel gazed over this vast valley of the dead remains of one-time warriors who now laid there where they had fallen, unburied, undignified in their death, God posed this question to him. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Think about that. That's that's quite a question. Who knows how long they were laying there? Long enough there's no flesh on them anymore. Long enough to know that There's no life in them. Many men would be quick to answer the question for Ezekiel. Don't be ridiculous. The scientific types would probably chuckle under their breath (laughs) and refuse to give an answer, thinking the whole matter too absurd to warrant a reply. And these bones will be out. Ezekiel answered wisely, however, saying, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. You alone know. You know, God's people learn in the first primers of their Christian walk to tread lightly when it comes to suggesting that God cannot do things or worse, that he does not know what he's talking about. As the account, Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the bones. 
Dry bones, verse 4 and following. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. You will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 4 through 6. And this is precisely what happened. Verse 7 and following. There was a noise. A rattling sound. Yeah, right. Bones coming together. Bones to bone. And the tendons and the flesh appeared on them. And skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Verse 7, verse 8. So there's an appearance of being whole, of being alive, but still, no. They're still dead. They are still lifeless. Verse 9, then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds. O breath, breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Verse 10 and following explains that this object lesson was a picture of Israel whose bones were dried up, its hope gone, its life cut off. The message God was conveying through Ezekiel, verse 12, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Here is the answer to our question. Why does God choose whom he will love solely on the basis of his own sovereign will? Okay, that's the question. Why is it God and not man who initiates repentance and faith in sinners. It is because man, all men, without exception, are dead. They're dry. They're without hope. They're cut off from God. There is no life in us to respond. No thought of God, no love of God, no belief in Him, no sorrow for our sinful rebellion towards Him. We do not give God a second thought, let alone first place in our lives. I was watching this week on television on YouTube, and you can go there see this, they were interviewing various religious 
leaders that teach in the con- in the country that have their own pastorates and stuff of that nature, and then interviewing people in reference to that. And I heard a lot of blasphemy this week. People who thought it good of themselves to take the name of Christ and the name of God and denigrate it and blaspheme it in front of everybody, mocking him in particular, as though they had no repercussions for doing such a thing. Ah, but the television people followed up on their lives five weeks out, three weeks out, two weeks out. And they found out that those mockers were severely plagued with sickness, vomiting, aches and pains, trouble, loss of loved ones in their own homes. Judgment after judgment after judgment. And it was brought out that you don't mock God and get away with it. We may have the appearance of life, of wholeness, as Ezekiel's listeners whose bones had come together with tendons and muscle and skin but still laid lifeless on the desert sand till God's Spirit breathed into them the breath of life. Paul speaks of the sensual-seeking woman as being dead even while she lives, 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. That is, dead to God is the idea, though very much alive to the flesh. And that's what I saw this week on these people. Including Oprah Winfrey and her guests and others that were interviewed. This could be all of us, all the time, with no exception. Religiously educated or unchurched, it doesn't make any difference. Biblically knowledgeable or scripturally illiterate, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Verse 12, at that time, separated from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. That's pretty desperate. Call a dead person to believe in Christ? He cannot do it. Present the gift of eternal life to him and enjoin him to reach out and take it? He cannot do it. Plead, invite, woo, reason with the man of the world to come to Jesus? He cannot do it. Why not? Because he's dead spiritually. And the things of God, Paul writes, he does not accept and cannot understand them. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. And I saw a lot of that this week on this show that I was watching. 
Can you not see how doomed we are if God does not choose to love us? Ah, but if he loves us, he does for us what he did for Israel. He sends his spirit to breathe life into our spiritually dead souls. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4. And this God did by sending His Holy Spirit to breathe life. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, I'm reading Scripture, is living in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. And you have received, whom you have received, the Spirit of Sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Romans 8, verse 11 and following. <coughs> His faith in Jesus and repentance of sins important to salvation? <coughs> well, absolutely. But for faith and repentance to be operative, <coughs> there has to be spiritual life. And it is the Spirit of God who grants <coughs> life to those whom God loves. And then the loved respond in faith and repentance. Can't be any other way. Because dead we are until God smiles upon us. and declares as the sovereign Lord that he is live live well what is the end goal of the matter God said of the resurrected dry bone warriors then you will know that I the Lord have spoken and I have done it declares the Lord, Ezekiel 37, verse 14. And he says to all of us in the new covenant, who though dead in sin were made alive in Christ, he says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in 
Christ Jesus. Verse 8. The glory of the gospel, brethren, is not that you love Jesus, but that he loved you. It is not that you chose him, but that he chose you. It is not that you received him as Savior, but that he made you as sons and daughters a part of his adopted family. The glory of the gospel is God and what he did, not you and what you did. And this is not subjective love. It is objective love. This is not feeling love that's here today and gone tomorrow. This is purposeful love based upon a one-sided covenant in which God chose to love us, the scripture says, before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, verse 4. And in love he predestinated us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. And, by the way, before we had done anything good or bad to influence his decision. This is an intentional, on-purpose love, not an accidental, out-of-control, fall-in-love kind of thing. By the way, we are to strive for this type of love ourselves. That is, to be objective. Intentional love on purpose, which determines to love one another in spite of the sins we see in each other and the failures people perpetrate against us. This is why God in his word can and does command us to love others, whether husbands loving their wives in Christ's as Christ loved the church, or the command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, illustrated in the account of the Good Samaritan, or the command to love our enemies, and to pray for those who despitefully use us, even as God sends his rain and sunshine on infidels to sustain their lives through the produce of their fields, just like he takes care of us. And love can be commanded because it's more than feelings. And it's more than subjective. Love is an objective choice. So may we this day choose love over hatred, compassion over callousness, and affection over anger tenderness over bitterness. We who know God must love like God loves. No strings attached. I pray that we'll have the enablement of the Holy Spirit to do that. 
You remember when people came into the Jerusalem church from foreign places? Remember what their evaluation was? They said, my, how these people love one another. All Jerusalem discovered that in time. Persecuted or not, beaten or not, dragged into jail or not, even some of them killed. The testimony around Jerusalem was, you know, these people love one another and they're willing to die for one another. We've never seen this. The Jewish faith, those Jews, those Pharisees, They don't love like that. In fact, by comparison, it doesn't look like they much love anybody except themselves. The church is a light of love, or should be, to the world. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great love. And we ask, Lord, that we might exhibit that as well. How's the world going to know what God stands for? They don't see it in our lives. If knowing you doesn't affect us personally, if it doesn't change us personally, then perhaps we have a false religion, or if it's not the religion that it's fault, it could very well be a deficiency in our own faith. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for good Christians that exhibit that love and really care for one another and take it personally to be a blessing rather than a nag or a curse or a complainer of other people. Lord, help us beyond our own sin and to live out the love of God. For your glory we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 92 in the hymnal. We're going to take a 10 minute break then and regather for the communion service. chose this hymn because boy it says a lot of what uh, what we have learned this morning in terms of love 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 divine all loves excelling nothing nothing like God's love for his people 92 Yeah. 
we'll take a 10-minute break. And hear the music for our communion service. Thank you. 